Okay, this is your host, Marco D'Angelo, here with our pregame.com podcast. This is a edition of our sports betting preview, but this is about horse handicapping, and you're going to get a special treat because you're going to get what we feel is one of the best handicappers on the Internet in prospectus. He's one of our forum members. Great detail. He sees horse handicapping in a way that is just light years above everybody else. In addition to what you're going to get from Prospectus today, you're also going to get my own personal takes. I've been handicapping horses for 30-some years. I've been in the horse business since 1986. I bought my first horse. So you're going to get both an owner, trainer, breeder. You're going to get the backside of horse racing along with one of the best handicappers that I've ever met. And so I think it's going to be a great one-two punch. This is going to be a podcast that you can listen to over and over again you'll you'll pick up things and we're going to probably end up doing series of these because there's just things that always change in in racing new angles new theories and i'm joined by prospectus prospectus how are you doing today I'm really well, Marco. How are you doing? Uh, this is great. I tell you, the support that we got from the forums and the questions that they sent in, and if they keep sending in questions like this, you know, we could have a whole series of shows. And you know, I've bought and read you know a ton of you know articles, handicapping books, and things about horse racing, and nothing scratches the surface of the kind of things that you know we've covered in our first two podcasts, and we will cover in in many more podcasts to come and they're getting this information for free thanks to pregame.com and uh it's great and uh it's what it's it's what sets pregame apart you know pregame is is and if you look what rj's whole uh mission statement is you know preparing people to play Uh, i'm not doing anything i will tell you right now that is all that outside the norm for a professional player i will tell you that uh you know that really the top pros in the world uh, are looking at the game uh, from a outside the box perspective, and that's how they stay in the game. So hopefully we can uh, turn some folks on to some uh, new ways of looking at things, answer some of their questions. The feedback has been great, and uh, it's just a great opportunity to participate and uh, to talk about some things that, frankly, RJ has the the courage to to have talked about a lot of uh, well, as you know. Very well, Marco. Uh, racing journalism is about follow the leader, and they don't even talk about the things that uh, that you and RJ are getting out there here at pro at pregame. Well, there, I mean, there are definitely some very touchy subjects in the sport, in just like any sport. I mean, there we've had situations in you know basketball and uh, football with you know betting scandals and everything, and unfortunately, you know, horse racing has been at the forefront. Um, there, you know, there has been race fixing there, you know, um, drug issues, uh, doping of horses and stuff. It's a black eye on the sport. Um, they're doing everything in their power in to make it a level playing field, but you know, it's technology and um, sometimes, uh, certain trainers and barns just seem to always get more out of their horses and, you know, there, it happens, but you know, it's that, it's that, it's that better oats. It's the better oats. Yeah, I, I need to get some of those. Uh, I need to. I hear you. I need those high powered oats. I'm racing on the old fashioned guy. But uh, let's go into. We've got some good questions, and these are general uh, betting theory and uh, handicapping 
uh, questions. And one of our, you know, very good guy on the forums, and I actually got to meet him in person. He was in town, and he, he stopped by the office and had lunch with uh, RJ and me. Apathy Next um, had a question. What is the best way to bet on an underdog horse? Is it better, say, to take a 20-to-1 shot, bet the horse, win, place, and show, or try to find other horses to put in exotics? Which method is better for making money long-term, trying to get the horses that are the heavy underdogs? What's your thoughts on betting strategy? As an overall betting strategy, uh, I think you have to define each race for yourself and say, what about this race makes, creates value and makes it a good betting race? Unless you can answer that question, you need to pass the race. In doing so, if you identify a horse who provides value, in this case they talked about a long shot, I believe that you need to do both. First of all, I think that the way that we play it straight is this. In a race of seven or more, and this is based on years and years of data, in a race of seven or more starters, where the horse you're playing is over 5 to 1 and the favorite is somewhat susceptible, vulnerable, then we believe in a win-place position and then identifying your long shot as the key in the race, playing him with the other contenders in all three positions. So say you like a horse who is 20 to 1, we would advocate a win-place in a field of seven or more, a win-place play, and then keying him in the principal positions with, say, the three other major contenders who you've identified in the race, uh, top, first, uh, first, second, and third, in the trifecta, in the exacta, and uh, that way you are maximizing your opportunity. The single, one of the most important things in this is when you're right, you have to be really right. Um, so often you hear people say, God, you know, I, I hit, I picked so many winners today, but I just don't feel like I, I maximized my opportunity to make money. Uh, one of the things you need to do is make sure that you give your ch- yourself a chance. If you really like that bomb, play him, win plays, and, uh, and then use him with the other major contenders that you identify in the exotics. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. The, the worst thing in the world is to pick a 20-to-1 shot and not make any money with the horse. You know, you say, oh, I'm going to tie up my money in the gimmicks, and then you miss the horse that come in second, and, and you come away from the race with no dollars, and, and the horse lights up the tote board at 44-40. You know, that, that's a bad, yeah. <laughs> bad situation. Um, one thing that you said at the beginning, and I'm, we have a thing with our sports podcast that we do that whenever we have um, a phrase or a, a highlight, a point, a handicapping tip that is very important, we call it a pregame nugget. And I'm going to give you guys a pregame nugget that was passed down to me from my dad um, one of the first or second times he took me to the track. And I started going to the track whenever I was 10 years old uh, with my dad. I loved the sport. I loved handicapping. And to be honest with you, it's probably what got me into the sports handicapping because I I started reading the racing form and and breaking down numbers and stuff at a a young age. Um, But he told me, and this is the key to racing. Ten, wasn't it, Marco? You were ten years old. I was ten years old when I went to my first uh, horse race. You cannot beat the races, but you can beat a race. You do not have to bet every race. Every race does not present value. 
You can beat a race, but you cannot beat the races. And just remember that because you go to the track for the day and there's nine races on the card, you don't have to bet all nine. But the beauty is nowadays, and, and, and that was a tougher thing to do way back whenever I was young, uh, because the only track you got to bet was the track you went to. So you had nine races, you bet nine, you know, you wanted to bet all nine of them. But now when you go to a track, you can also bet, you know, generally 10 other tracks that's being simulcast at the same time. So you can read the racing form, you can look at different tracks and look for value and you know you can be betting three or four races you know in an hour's period but they're scattered all over the country you're not playing every race on a particular tracks card i think that's yeah well i you know if anybody takes anything away from this that might be the most important thing that they can take away what you just said right there and it's it's true, and it's it's words to live by. And uh, moving on, we have an, another guy that's a, a big form guy for us, TX Golfer, and he. I like uh, TX Golfer stuff a lot. He's he's very very good poster and very interesting as well. Very, very active on the forums, and he asked, similar to line moves in regular sports, is there anything at all that can be deciphered from a fifteen to one morning line long shot? bet down to five to two or vice versa the morning line favorite at seven to two moves to eight or nine to one does that ever or always represent public or sharp money is there such a thing in horse racing i'll let you take the lead again and then i got some strong comments yeah you know and your insight here as far as the backstretch guy is going to be very important uh i will tell you there are two types of line moves in racing there is the pro move the the guys who are what I talk about on pregame, 5% of the guys bet over 60% of every pool. Now, what that means is that um, there is a pro steam that exists. Uh, Frisian Fire was an example of that. Uh, on Derby Day, that 60% bet by the top 5% players of the players, that might drop to 30 35%, but still just a, a huge part of it. Uh, those of us who do figures uh, and saw the forward-moving pattern with Frisian Fire uh, all seem to jump on the same key. Uh, unfortunate because he got bet down to seven to two, and as you are well aware, uh, that really cascaded with "I Want Revenge" uh, scratching out of this year's Kentucky Derby. Uh, that was a pro move. Uh, when you see a young horse who might have one or two races under his belt that may not be that great, or a first-time starter, and you see the tote board blink when it was 10 to 1 in the morning line and the first change is uh, 9 to 5 or 5 to 2, then you, know, you can be pretty much assured that that is uh, backside stable money. So those are the ty- two types of moves. I will premise this, though. If you are going to be a tote board reader, you need to do more than just read each individual uh, tote board. You need to do some work. So the way that the pros do it, I'm, I'm, this, this isn't our methodology. Our methodology, as you know, is based upon performance figures. But the guys who play totes, what they will do is they will actually track betting patterns for different stables. And they will know which of the outfits actually bet their horses when it's go day and ignore their horses when it isn't uh, go day. Uh, I know you're going to talk a lot more about this, but those are the key, key parts of the answer for me. Okay, uh, I agree with you. I'm going to start it off with where the 
everything starts, the morning line. Understand that the morning line is one person's opinion. Generally, there, you know, there's one person. At my particular racetrack, the person that uh, does the morning line is actually the track announcer. He has a, a straightforward formula that he uses to do the, the morning line, and sometimes it's just so wrong uh, because he doesn't really factor in handicapping elements such as up and down in class to, to a big degree. You're looking at strictly performance. So t- sometimes you'll have a horse that morning line is 10 to 1, um, it's dropping two class levels down and opens up at seven to two. Um, is that smart money? That in that instance, it's not barn money. It's people that read the racing form for a living and and know what they're reading and know that this horse is value that the horse is down in class and they're making a, a move right and, and, and those are the pros marco right now what you're going to get what i have found and you can tell me if your thoughts are different on this you have different size track tracks all across the country you know a hollywood um you know they bet millions of dollars at the track the handle then you got small tracks um my particular home track is a very small track um, I'll be honest, um, I don't bet at my track. It, when my horse is live that day, I don't bet in, until inside of the last minute of the tote board because the amount of money that I will bet at the small track will make a major impact. If I made that same bet at Hollywood, the, the, the odds could go up, okay, if I was the only one betting. Um, you got to look at track size. So, a smaller track, late money is definitely, I have found, more often than not, and probably 75% of the time, it's the barn sending it through. Yes, and especially in the, uh, in, 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 in the smaller track instance. I will just premise one thing. So we are in the era of auto bet computer programs. And what, I guess my answer was referring more to A-level thoroughbred racing. What we are dealing with is some computer programs that are actually sending plays automatically into pools based upon a preset uh, standards and handicapping uh, premise that uh, is, is built into the software. So what you will get in the last change is some of the offshores who are getting that money funnel it into the pools. That's just how it works. A lot of guys will see odds drop from 5 to 1 to three to one as they go in the gate or unfortunately even when they break from the gate and uh you know that'll be that money coming in and there is a real issue right now in the game and it's what professionals are very frustrated by is the odds changes at the end and a lot of that is the auto bet software packages that are out there that some of the really big uh, consortiums are using where their real goal is to break uh, even or show a very small profit and then take the rebate back and that's their whole business and it's the whole auto bet software package so uh, yes absolutely it, the smaller tracks you're 100 percent right that's stable money big a-level thoroughbred racing what you're seeing a lot is the late money coming in from those uh from those computer programs and frankly very few people even know they exist but it's a huge huge issue in the game Another situation that I've I've seen in racing where you'll have you'll have a horse take a little bit of money early and then it'll start to creep up 
and he kind of gets forgot about and then gets bet again late. Um, again, I think that is a pattern of the barn. And what generally happens is... I agree completely with that, yes. The early money, what I have found from my experience is, you know, let's go to the daily, um, the business of, of horse racing. These guys get to the barn. It's, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning. They feed the horses. You know, they got to clean the stalls. That's part of the game. But there's people involved on the lower level of the horse game. There's grooms. There's stable hands. All these people are, you know, the inner circle. These guys don't, you know, they're not betting big money, but they're going to know when the horse is live, and they're going to get their, you know, their money in. And every guy that works in a barn has a friend that works in another barn. So you get a little bit of a trickle down. Hey, my horse, you know, I'm grooming, you know, number three and the third. He's live today. You know, he tells a buddy. Well, that buddy has a buddy, and that buddy has a buddy, and you know how that works. That's where you'll see that little bit of trickle of that early money sometimes that, you know, it's leaked out to some of the hands, and they got to bet early because they're in the paddock and so forth, you know. Then the big money, the barn, the owners, you know, the the betting syndicates that are connected to some of the barns, their money comes flying in late. So I love a pattern where I see some unusual money early and then start to climb up and then late money late. I'm running to the window knocking people over to get to the window. I'll make sure I get out of your way, but, yeah, I couldn't agree more that that is. uh, I know in talking to guys who do track odds uh, for every race, uh, that that that's what that's one of the real angles that they look at too. Again, I will repeat that uh, I say there's a a million dollars in a race, uh, or let's just take an allowance race on a Thursday afternoon, and let's say that there's two hundred thousand dollars in a race, and uh, uh, I will tell you that five percent of the of, of the guys are betting one hundred forty thousand dollars of that two hundred thousand dollars. So, and the guys who are doing it are are are, are doing it for a living. And they're pretty sharp. And what they're doing is they are looking for holes in the in the odds where the general public they feel are not going to understand that this horse has got is and usually it's dealing with figures is not as fast the the favorite is not as fast as another horse who is a bigger price. So what you will see is you will see these groups these guys continuing to monitor the odds. So they might say, okay, this horse is value at three to one. So they'll send some money in early. And they'll be knocked down to five to two or three to one, and then the general public bets some money, and then it, that'll go back up to four to one, five to one, six to one, and then near the end, you're absolutely right. What'll happen is these guys will jump back in. They say, "Okay, my my value quotient here is three to one, so I'm going to put some some more money into this horse now. I may knock him down to five to two. Or, pardon me, I may knock him down to seven to two, uh, but then it'll go back up anyway because then all that other money will, cu- will funnel in uh, from um, fr- from the rest of the pool. And you know you'll end up with a four to one shot, and then it will have taken a lot of money at the start. Uh, that'll cool off and then take money at the end. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That is one of the real angles that folks look for, and uh, I certainly don't mind seeing it when I'm playing a horse either. Um, sticking with the TX golfer, he put a second question in, and this one can be a lengthy answer. So we're going to just go for a, you know, a couple real quick, uh, 
most important things to look at because I think you could do an entire podcast on how to read the daily racing form. Right. What I'm going to say to you, what do you think are the one or two most important things for the average guy getting started in in betting horses that when he picks up the the Bible, the, the daily racing form, what he should look at? I think the most important thing he should do is look at the name of the horse and understand that outside of that, uh, he's dealing with exactly the same data that everybody else is. So he better make sure that uh, he, he, he gets access to, to some different data. And that's going to sound really bad, but to win in this game, if you're using the same information that, uh, that uh, the rest of the public is using, uh, you can't win. Um, I know that uh, that's going to seem somewhat, uh, somewhat harsh and somewhat... Uh, uh, you know, a statement that 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 really isn't fair, but but it, but I really I believe it. Uh, garbage in is is garbage out, and uh, the racing form provides some information to a player. But unless you have got information, pardon me, you have got um, data or information that the general public does not have, then you, uh, you 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 cannot win in the long term. The biggest problem in the racing form is the most important thing in any race is how fast is this horse. Uh, the the buyer figure, while extremely accurate uh, in uh, uh, assessing the speed that the horse ran, does not take in how far he ran. Uh, you have got uh, uh, issues of uh, of ground loss and weight. Uh, there's a reason that they stagger the start of Olympic races, uh, and that's because uh, you know the the finite aspect of any race is the distance. The infinite aspect of it, Marco, is this: how far does the horse travel? And until you're dealing with figures that allow you to assess who the true fastest horse in the race is, it's very, very, very difficult to win. And that's the most honest answer I can give you to that question. One other thing of dealing, um, and this is, again, something that you've got to understand in racing, and uh, it's one of the things we'll talk about um, later in this podcast is watching races and what you can gain from them. But a situation is you can look at two particular races of a horse. And one race could be, say, two seconds faster than the other one. And I have found, and especially in harness racing, this is more so, but it it, it applies in thoroughbred as well, that people will look and say, well, this horse went this fast. Why didn't he, you know, and this week the race went, you know, two seconds slower and he didn't win. I don't understand. Um, Or vice versa, I could have a horse race two seconds slower in that race be more impressive than the other one. And what I'm going to say is how the race unfolded, what the fractions were, where the horse was at during the race. Was it suicide fractions on the front end? And this horse came as a stone closer when all the other horses did the work and were tired and he picked up dead horses down the stretch and got what I call a counterfeit time because the other horses did the work or a horse that was on the front end, unchallenged, running loose on the lead, and ran off from the field and had a super time. But then you had a race maybe two weeks later that the horse ran a second or two slower but was run at the whole race, challenged, and that race is even more impressive because the horse was traumatized the entire mile or whatever the distance was. Uh, Those are factors that you don't always see looking at the racing form because you're going to see, well, a horse was on top, but, you know, was he in a speed duel out of the gate? Did he have to put a horse away to take control 
on the front by himself? Did a did a horse come at him early? Those kind of things. What you know? What were the fractions? Were they loose? Uh, trip wide? You know, was he pinned in along the rail? You get that. You you can see some stuff in the racing form, but the racing form is just numbers. Today's technology where you can watch replays online, there's subscription services to, you know, you can get unlimited race replays from almost any track in the country. Those are valuable tools. I don't know how you feel, but it's a big part of my handicapping. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, for our brethren who play the standard breads, uh, you know, that kind of insight is is absolutely excellent. Uh, now, as it applies to the thoroughbreds, uh, raw times are almost irrelevant. Uh, I deal with figures on a nightly basis, five times a week, where we're doing, uh, our software is put together this way. We're doing the winner, and then from that we do the ground loss and we have a beaten lengths adjustment chart for every distance where we're able to come up with figures for all the rest of the horses in the race. And uh, One of the biggest challenges in making figures is uh, changing track speeds. Uh, so raw times in thoroughbreds are really quite irrelevant. Uh, when you're um, dealing, and most people don't even understand how the buyer number is made. Um, and, and, you know, we could do a whole podcast on figure-making methodology. Uh, one thing I will tell you is that in creating... Uh, what we think are pretty accurate figures. Uh, you know, we're assessing uh, the past performances of each horse who's run in that race so that we can actually make sense of a race. And in creating what we call uh, the track variant, the track variant for uh, does not stay the same throughout the day. We wish that it did. Had these arguments for years with different folks. And uh, one of the things that's important to understand is that weather changes, humidity, wind, sun, baking out racetracks. Racetracks change speed throughout the day, much more in thoroughbreds, of course, because of makeup of the racetrack. But we're always trying to identify what the accurate, what the accurate track variant is on a day, or for each race, for that matter, and be able to tie that into the raw figure. And that's how buyer does it. Uh, what we add to that is uh, ground loss, a uh, certain number of uh, points for each path outside on the turn, and then a certain number of identified points for each extra pound carried in a race. Uh, figure making is a- incredibly complex. Um, and to identify, uh, just in a podcast like this, uh, you know how you make uh, accurate figures, uh, it's, it's a case of, now I will tell you that there are people who will argue that it is a, it is it is an actual accurate science. Um, it isn't. It's an it, it's a combination of art and science. Uh, over you know years of of, of putting together uh, a set of database to work with. Uh, uh, if 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 you do play with accurate figures, uh, then this game becomes much much more manageable because you're able to answer the most important question in thoroughbred racing, and that is who is the fastest horse in the race. If you can answer that. You're well on the way to having an opportunity to win. Uh, you know, as far as reading the racing form goes, I felt kind of bad answering it the way I did. You know, we, uh, you know, there's educational tools, and you know, I'd even be willing to do a something of a PowerPoint presentation uh, at pregame if we could work it out, where you and I can go through and actually indicate to folks how to either read a standard bread or a thoroughbred program. I'd have to leave the standard bread one to you because I'm afraid I'd sound pretty, pretty neophyte. In fact, uh, I, I wouldn't really know what I was looking at. But as far as the thoroughbreds go, uh, you can go to either the Equibase website or buy a copy of the racing form, and they will show you, uh, they have an educational tool there where you can learn to read it. But as far as if you want to understand 
the fact that the top players in the world have access to to information that isn't available in the racing form, you've got to learn at that level to be competitive. Would you suggest any other publications out there uh, to our listeners other than the racing form that you know is? Yeah, there, there, there are <clears throat> there are some really high end speed figure makers who sell their stuff that you can buy, uh, and it wouldn't take much investigating on behalf of folks who do want to get serious about the game but don't want to invest the time to do their own figures. And frankly, it takes years to put the database together to be able to do them. There are, uh, there are two premium figure makers in the game, and they sell, uh, they sell figures that uh, are performance figures where they include uh, ground loss, weight, and uh, uh, wind speed, in fact, and they are using live ground for every single racetrack in North America. And I would suggest that uh, if somebody wanted to get serious about the game, they should, uh, you know, investigate those two services. Uh, one in particular, I'm not going to give them any free advertising here, but, uh, you know, they can look at that as an opportunity to uh, really improve their game. Okay. And uh, just one point that I'll, I'll make that a lot of, you know, the the average guys that go to the track, remember that when you're at the racetrack, you're not trying to beat the racetrack. The racetrack is a winner every day. It doesn't matter if the favorite wins or, you know, the 30-to-1 shot wins. The track makes the same money. They take their cut out of the pool. You're betting against the rest of the people at the racetrack, divvying up that that pool uh, of wagers. And knowledge is powerful. Most people, the only knowledge they have is they look at the racing form and they look at the horse that has the fastest time or the, the highest buyer number, and that's how they're betting, pure and simple. Right. Right. And, yeah, absolutely. And and to get to the point where where you have access and an understanding as to why some horse has gone from fifteen to one to five to one, and you can gain access to figures that the professionals are using, and uh, you don't want to invest the years to come up with a database yourself. There are services available who will provide uh, provide that, and they're not cheap by any means. Okay, the because um, we want to keep this podcast at a manageable uh, timetable. I'm going absolutely. to. We're going to go one more question here, and it, it, it's a good question, um, and it's one that I can give some good insight to. And some of these other questions that we're going to save for another podcast because we'll end up probably, if the response continues the way it's been, we'll, we'll have a series of these, and it'll be a nice library for people, you know, to be able to, you know, download these into your iPod, and you know, you can listen to them while you're on the way to the track and have a refresher course. But um, Slip, one of our forum members. Uh, there is a very common scenario in horse racing called stiff and win. You will see a horse, and he makes references to the 2009 Kentucky Derby, uh, Frisian Fire, you know, was well-touted, got bet heavily in the race, and then, you know, didn't run a lick. The next race, the horse comes back and runs like, you know, the wind at a nice price. You know, what's up with that? You know, and you're going to see situations of that. I'm going to let you talk um, about that situation on the better standpoint and the handicapper standpoint. And then I'm going to talk to you about some of the things that happen from an owner standpoint that you never know. So go ahead. Okay. As far as Frisian fire goes, and I, I think that, you know, that's somewhat unlikely because of the m- millions and millions of dollars that were, that are, that are at stake as far as the, uh, the, the derby and to just to 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 uh to stiff a horse and then to to set up better odds in the next race that won't happen but most assuredly uh, what does happen 
is that certain trainers, and this is where having a database and understanding of the operating uh, style of each trainer is so important. Uh, to understand if a trainer is good first off the layoff, second off the layoff, or third off the layoff, whether or not uh, a horse who's getting its first lifetime start will win. Now, if you consider it to be stiffing, that they know, the barn knows, the trainer knows, the jockey knows that we're not winning today, uh, then that happens every day at every single racetrack. Uh, and buyer beware, because it's just an assumed part of the game. Uh, and uh, do horses get stiffed because they're bed down too low? Uh, they do at the, at the smaller tracks, without a doubt. What you will see is you will see a claimer who, they dark, it's called darkening their form, where you'll see uh, horses run poorly in consecutive races with an eye towards cashing a score. Happens much more often at the B and C level tracks than it does at the A level tracks, but make no mistake, it happens at the A level tracks in the claiming game as well. Uh, I can't disagree with that. Um, one of the situations, and, and I'm not going to be one that's going to tell you that, you know, every race is run on the straight and narrow. They're not. But one of the things you talk about, and I think the worst races to bet, and you may feel differently, but I'm going to tell you why from an average guy, unless you've got some insight to the race, maiden races are the worst. And the situation is it's not stiffing. Sometimes the trainer, the owners, the connections, they've gotten together with their horse. They've got a lot of money invested in this animal. The horse has been in training. You know, they bought the horse at a yearling sale in the fall. You know, all fall, winter, you're, you're training the horse to bring it out for the two-year-old season. You know, you, you have months and months of investment before you have a chance to get a return on your dollar. You don't want to just go out on the first start and send the horse down the road sometimes. You want to educate the horse. There's things that happen in the course of a race that you can't really simulate in training, and you want them to learn how to maybe race from behind, how to leave the gate fast, different things. You have agendas that you know that your horse is ready to win, but he might not be ready to take on the next class level that the horse has to go to once he gets that maiden win. The maiden victory is the easiest win for any horse to get, okay? It's, you know, because you're facing a, a field of horses that nobody's won. So, you know, that's going to be your easiest win. That net class from non-winners of one to non-winners of two is the biggest class jump that most horses will take in their life. And you need to be ready to go to that next class that you, your, your foundation has been set. That's one thing that happens sometimes in maiden races. It's not really stiffing a horse. It's educating the horse. So as you use the phrase, buyer beware on a race like that. Something that comes about that people, the general public, has no idea about. A horse had been racing good and all of a sudden throws a bad race in. You don't know why. Sometimes the trainer don't know why either. And the owner comes over, and I've done it many times, and, you know, come to the barn after the race and say, you know, what's up? And, you know, and we're scratching our head because these are animals. They don't talk. They don't tell you what's wrong. you got to find what's wrong. And sometimes we've had a situation, and it was probably one of the best scores I ever made with one of my own horses. We had a horse that just the last, 
um, eighth of a mile, she just she couldn't get to the wire. She, you know, she was a front runner, and generally she, you know, she would go out, hold on. If she if she faded, she'd fade to second or something. You know, she she was good. We had her in the right class, you know, and where she could make money and everything. But you know, a couple starts in a row, the horse was no good. She just couldn't finish the mile, and she was finishing fifth, sixth. You know, stopping badly. We end up finding out that she had a lung infection. And the only reason, the only way we found it, because she had no mucus coming up, you know, nothing in her nostrils, visible, anything, that we took her to a clinic and put her on a huge machine and we got a chest x-ray and we found the lung infection. We had to put the horse on medication. It's medication that was legal, but you couldn't race on. So we had to stop the medication X number of days out from the race. So by the time all of this was done, the horse was about 22 days since its last race. And in harness racing, you have to race once within every 30 days or you have to requalify. So she was going to be short her first race. Now, we're not going to send that horse out. She's short and, and send her to the front end and, you know, and have her finish up the track. We're going to, you know, race her along the rail, you know, keep her under wraps, get a tightener mile in her, and then the next mile – you know, she's going to be better for it and we're going to go with her. And that was a situation. It's a situation that I knew there was something wrong with her that the public didn't know. Uh, you know, being the owner and, you know, having my trainer, I had the benefit of that. Did we cheat anybody? No. You know, we raced the horse, we raced her conservatively, got what we could get, but didn't overextend her to get the tightener. But in the next race, we did send her down the road, and uh, she went wire to wire and paid twenty eight forty. and a long shot come in second for the, the trifecta and the exacta key, Will, so it was a good day in Marco land. <laughs> Very good. Sounds like a great story. I wish it was there. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> but those are situations that happen that the public – the racing forum can't tell you that, and everybody's not going to know that. But that's not anything, you know, that was shady. You know, are we right. and, and that, that's that's it, it, it's the game. Uh, you know, one of the ways I answered it when somebody asked a question uh, about the the, the racing forum is, you know, the, there is more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, what you, when I talk about. Uh, you know, the key factors in re- in reading a racing form. Uh, what I'm talking about, you know, it, you know, we we use performance figures. There are people who are very successful who use other uh, handicapping methodology, and certainly we don't make negative comments about them. Uh, there are some guys who have just a great grasp of of trainer patterns, uh, horses who uh, are are ready to run based upon. You know, trainers in the past, and the most valuable ones involved. Those are 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 the are the ones who that aren't well known by the public. So guys who work really hard find out that an obscure trainer does this when he wins. Uh, so that is uh, you know certainly a methodology. Some guys use trip handicapping, where you know they will uh, watch replay after replay, race after race, and identify where they feel horses had problems or where they feel horses were being pulled and and waited. For, uh, and they were waiting for for the next race or two races down the road. There are fellows who, uh, who and not so much anymore, but who who will uh, at least in the thoroughbred game, who will uh, look at uh, trainers and how they play the class game and move their horses up and down. And horses uh, uh, who who may be taking an edge based on that. But uh, there are many way, different ways to skin a cat, and uh, certainly identifying 
what you feel the most important part of, handi- of the handicapping puzzle is and gaining as much knowledge as it applies to that is, is really important because, as you say, you know, in this game, uh, people do not run for first for the money every single time they enter a horse. Uh, and <clears throat> understanding the, uh, the, the trainer patterns, the owner patterns, is very, very important to uh, any kind of success you're going to have. And the game will look a lot cleaner to you, too, because what happens in those instances is you will see that uh, uh, a trainer who uh, does not win first out uh, and horses will run second out, when you understand that that's the case, the game will look significantly different and much more, uh, much more on the level than what it probably appears to you now. And these are the kind of things that we're going to bring you guys in, in these series of podcasts. And, I mean, literally we could go on for two hours today talking about, you know, we haven't even scratched the surface with the questions that we got today. But we want to keep these how-to handicapping uh, podcast around the, the 40-minute mark. So, you know, we're going to wrap this up today. But we will be back with more of these type things. And after you listen to this, you'll, you'll hear some of the things that, you know, we've discussed today, and it'll trigger some questions that you have have in your head that you might not have thought of at the time get into the forums put your questions there you can you know post it in the forums we'll have a thread there you ask them we're going to get them answered for you and this is going to be a series that you know you guys if you like horse racing and you make enough noise you'll have more of it and again i want to thank perspectives um you know your insights are great and I think we got a nice little one-two punch here of taking it from both sides of the, you know, the oval. We we got it from the bat, the paddock, and we got it from the betting window, and combine the two. And I, I think we can just create a, a deadly arsenal for our listeners here at pregame. You know, you're helping my game a lot, Marco, and your understanding of the game from the backside is uh, is opening my eyes to some uh, some some new things. And I know that the way we're answering these questions. Uh, is the, they're not being answered this way anywhere else. And we're trying to be as honest as we can possibly be and as straightforward as to how we see the game. I will just, I want to close it by saying this. Uh, you wouldn't go ahead and hire a financial analyst who went to work, had a cup of coffee, and just opened up the financial post that morning. Uh, there needs to be some preparation. You need to have a game plan. You're, it's essentially a war. Uh, you're against some really, really sharp guys. You need a game plan going in, and it takes some work before you get into it. And, Marco, the kind of insight you're giving is, you know, people are able to actually approach that with a lot more confidence. Well, I appreciate that in, in you breaking down the numbers game for everybody. And, and, and I really do believe that you're uh, doing a podcast strictly on your speed figures. Um, that, that's a one podcast by itself. Uh, it sure is. It absolutely is. And so if you guys want to hear that stuff, again, get into the forums. Let us know. Say, RJ, listen, we want more. And uh, we'll make it happen. That's our motto at pregame. You talk, we listen. And uh, this is uh, Marco D'Angelo, again, along with Prospectus. I want to thank you guys. We'll be back with more of these how-to handicapping podcasts. This has been a pregame.com production. And thank you, Prospectus, and thank all of the listeners. 